Matthew 26, and it's going to be verses 36 through 46. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited to open up God's Word, and again, through technology, but we are still able to, to, to open His Word together. And one of the reasons why is because even, and even especially during this stressful time, the unknown, just as, as Seth was praying there, all these different things that's impacting people. Uh, as Paul writes in 2 Timothy, that what we have before us is the, the very breathed out words of the living God. And what, what else or what more would we need than these the words of the living God? Um, the Bible tells us over and over, it reminds us of the amazing promises that God gives us. It reminds us of, honestly, the hope we have. It just describes reality. What, what is reality? How do we uh, relate to what's going on, to each other? And God's word tells us that. It directs us. It just doesn't leave us. It's an anchor, as the Hebrew, um, the writer of Hebrew says, the anchor, our hope. And so I'm pretty excited. Uh, God's word renews our minds. It gives us hope. It renews our soul. And so I'm pretty pumped. But uh, last week, we began kind of a series looking at the events leading up to the crucifixion of Christ and then the resurrection. And what we saw last week was Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that Jesus is king, that he is the one who has authority. He's the long-awaited king. There's literally dozens of prophecies centuries before Christ is born that's fulfilled in him. He's the one who deserves worship, and thankfully Kevin just led us in some worship there, worship through song. Um, And he's the the king who demands a decision on our part. And so that's what we're going to continue is looking at King Jesus. And we'll see, uh, leading up to the days, the last days before he's crucified. And today, as John just read, we're looking at Thursday of the Passover week in 33 AD, so close to 2,000 years ago. That Thursday of Passover week, we're looking at an event in Jesus' life that took place about roughly midnight. And we'll see here, as John just read, that Jesus agonizes. He agonizes almost unto death, it says. And the question is, what is it that this King Jesus, the the God-man, the Son of God, what is it that causes him to agonize so much? The answer is your sin. It's my sin. Let me say that again. So what is it? Uh, we see King Jesus come in. He rightfully comes in, being lofted as the king as he entered Jerusalem. And now just days later, he's in a garden and he just agonizes almost to death. And we see him in probably the most vulnerable time uh, as, in his, as a human here on earth. And what leads him to that is our sin. And so again, if you haven't been there, Matthew 26, and that's what we're going to see today. And this is what I'm planning for us to do, is that we'll walk through this account together. I'll make some commentary here and there, kind of point some things out. But uh, let's, let's let this account speak for itself, because it will clearly show us, it will show each of us, how the one who the creation, us, have been made through and for, namely Jesus, how he agonizes for the sin of his creatures. And we'll see how the king agonizes even the idea of taking on our sin and being punished for it. So that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to look at. So let's look at me at verse, look with me at verse 36. 
where Matthew sets up the setting. Verse 36, Matthew writes, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. So they come to Gethsemane to pray, right? Uh, the apostle John, in his account, he records that this was a place, the Garden of Gethsemane, that they came often. This isn't a unique place. Like They came often, Jesus and his disciples, to pray here. Okay, so it's nothing new. And, and interestingly, in present day now, in that same location, because we know where it's at, it's described here, there's actually uh, a garden full of ancient olive trees. And when I say ancient, I mean ancient. These olive trees can, can live up to 1,500 years, and so they live a long time. Now, Gethsemane, what it literally means is oil press. Gethsemane means oil press. And so it describes this location well. Um, what we get here is a picture of a garden that's right outside the city limits of Jerusalem. It's on the Mount of Olives. It's called the oil press. So therefore, there must have been a press there for oil. And what that looked like at that time was a, a big rock, a stone, typically, that they would use to crush and to pulverize uh, like the olives so that the oil would come from it, would completely pulverize it. And so we see Jesus come to a garden about midnight on Thursday of the Passover week in 33 AD, and he comes to be crushed by the wrath of God. And so like I said, midnight, Thursday of Passover, 33 AD. Keep in mind that just hours later at 9 o'clock, the, the gospel writers record for us, is when he's crucified. 9 a.m. on Friday, he's crucified. This is roughly midnight on Thursday, just hours before. So it's also important in mind, I'm setting this up, because Matthew is setting this up on purpose. Keep in mind the location. It's a garden. Uh, the location is important. For example, uh, we remember back in Matthew 4, I believe it is, when Jesus begins his public ministry in a wilderness, right? 40 days, he's in the wilderness. And Jesus tempts him at least three major times. We get echoes of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. Israel, who multiple times grumbled against God, but we see Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days, completely obeying God. And so we see this contrast. And that's exactly what we see here in the Garden of Gethsemane. When you hear a garden, what do you think of? The Garden of Eden, how it all began. So Jesus' ministry is ending in a garden. Here on earth, his ministry is ending in a garden. Life, creation, time began in a garden. In the garden, we see Adam and Eve. We see them tempted by Satan, and they disobey God. They think they know more, and they go, and they disobey, and they eat the forbidden fruit, right? Jesus, three times he prays. Uh, no doubt, Jesus, uh, Satan is tempting him, Right? To not go through with this. But Jesus obeys. Where Adam and Eve disobeyed, Jesus obeys in this garden. And so that's the setting. I'm trying to set this up because Matthew's setting this up. Very late Thursday night, Jesus and disciples come to a garden that they have often come to in the past. And look at this. What, what does Jesus do just mere hours before he takes on our sin and is crucified? He prays to his Father. He prays to his Father. He tells his disciples to sit there. I'm going to go this way. It's recorded in Luke. And Luke's account of the same thing from his perspective. 
that Jesus also tells the disciples to, to sit there, wait for him, and pray. What is interesting is that nowhere in any of the accounts of this event that any of the disciples are praying. So Jesus asked them to pray, and none of them are praying. What we do see recorded is that they're falling asleep. And so we get this contrast here, and we'll see throughout this. The disciples, they're either ignorant of what's going on, or they're arrogant thinking they can do it themselves. Well, Jesus goes ahead. He's entering his fiercest battle in the war. He's going up. His buddies, the disciples, are in the garden, and Jesus asked them to pray. And then this continues in verse 37. So that's the setting. This is what they we're entering into. Verse 37 Matthew writes, and taken with them Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which we know are James and John, uh, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And so Jesus takes the, the three main leaders, Peter, James, John, the, in the inner ring with Jesus, his main, uh, the, the closest friends, the ones that saw his transfiguration. He takes them, he brings them with. And then he tells them that he's, be, or he, he's beginning to be sorrowful and troubled. And what's, what's interesting, or not interesting, but important to note is that in the original language, these are very strong words. This isn't just like, oh, uh, I stubbed my toe. This kind of stinks. These is intense sorrow, intense trouble. Verse 38, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So he gives the same thing, the same instructions to the inner three. So Jesus becomes overcome with sorrow. He's surrounded by sorrow. There's no comfort. There's not even this hope of comfort. Sorrowful even unto death. I'm sure a lot of us have felt a, a, a depth of sorrow when a loved one passes away, when someone makes a very, um, very hurtful decision. Jesus felt sorrow even unto death. Luke, he's a physician. In his account, he records that Jesus sweat drops of blood. During this time, he sweat drops of blood. It's a condition called hematidrosis. It's an actual, very rare, rare medical condition where one's tiny blood vessels burst and it effuses with the sweat glands and therefore you sweat drops of blood. And the cause of it is extreme anguish and stress. And so we get this picture that Jesus is an extreme agonizing. And I know for me, if I have a, a difficult task coming up, uh, whatever it might be, some project at home I think is going to go bad, or, or having a hard conversation, I tend to dread it. And sometimes the act of just dreading what's going on with this task is worse than the actual task. Not so here with Jesus. Not at all. The highest degree of dread is justified for what lays ahead for Jesus completely justified. The task ahead is going to be excruciatingly horrible and awful above else. So any dread beforehand would be accurate to the utmost for Jesus because it's horrible what's going in front of him. And he knows what's coming. Emotionally, he knows the emotional pain to come. He's about to be betrayed. He's about to be falsely accused, denied, rejected by his friends and by the same people who said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, son of David, just days before they're going to do that to him. He knows the excruciating physical pain and torture that's about to come in mere hours. He knows he's going to be flogged almost to death. He knows he's going to be crucified, which is 
considered the most painful method of execution ever devised. In fact, we, as in the English, has created a word based on that to describe it. Excruciating. Crucifixion, excruciating. We built that word off of that. That's how horrible the crucifixion is. So he knows that's coming. He knows all this is coming. It's no doubt factored into his agony. But there's far more that he knows is coming. And what's coming is he's going to be separated from the goodness and the love of God the Father. So his Father will forsake him. Because he's going to take on our sin. He's going to take on your sin. And he's going to forsake him. And the Son of God, who has communed with the Father and the Spirit for all of eternity, is about to be forsaken for the first time. For all of eternity. He's about to be identified with your iniquity. He's about to be... The whole host of heaven is about to turn their back on him. And so can you imagine this intense sorrow? He's agonizing. He knows what's coming. He knows the emotional, the physical, but far above the spiritual pain that's coming. And the only comfort he can find, none of the disciples, they're kind of falling away already, but he finds hope and some comfort in God the Father and praying to him. But can you imagine that even this, to some degree, only intensifies the sorrow because he knows and there's a matter of hours, him, who he's finding hope from and comfort from, he himself is going to turn his back on him as well. And so there's just this loss of hope, this deepening of sorrow, just this loneliness, this absolute desolate loneliness overcoming him. We know on the cross, just mere hours from now, from him in the garden, he's going to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first time in history, in eternity, that God the Father turns away from the Son. Not only that, in Isaiah 53, it tells us that the Father will crush him, will compulverize him like the oil press. Why? Because of our sin. He's going to take the wrath of God and he's going to be pulverized. So in this garden of the oil press, Jesus agonized over the reality that he's about to be crushed for your iniquity and for my iniquity. One Christian in history uh, described this moment this way. He writes, He had before his eyes the dreadful tribunal of God, the judge himself armed with inconceivable vengeance. And because our sins, the load of which was laid upon him, pressed him down with their enormous weight. There's no reason to wonder, therefore, if the dreadful abyss of destruction tormented him grievously with fear and anguish. So this is all happening. Jesus sees all this coming in mere hours. And he agonizes. He sweats drops of blood. He's sorrowful even unto to death. And in this battle, in this dark time, he turns to his three closest friends and he asks for them to watch. Verse 39, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So we see Jesus continues by himself. He leads the three. He left the disciples. He brought the three. And then he told the three to watch. And he goes on by himself. And it says he falls on his face in a desperate act of entreaty. And he says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. In the Old Testament, this imagery of a cup was a symbol, was often a symbol of God's wrath against sin. 
We can see this in Isaiah 51. Isaiah writes, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. And just a few chapters before or earlier in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus refers to a cup that their disciples are going to drink and refers to their suffering that they're going to, they're going to endure. And so we see this cup that Jesus is almost entreating, begging the Father, if it can pass, let it pass. If it can pass, let it pass. And that cup is the cup of God's wrath. That he was about to become the object of God's wrath. And the thing is this. That's your cup, not his. And that's my cup, not his. That's a cup you deserve. That's a cup I deserve. That is not the cup he deserved. What is it that provokes the wrath of God? It's our sin. Regardless of how small or insignificant it may seem to us, all sin is an assault on the infinite majesty and sovereign authority of God. God, by the perfection of his moral nature, cannot but be hostile to sin, and all sin, be it ever so small in our eyes. This is from Jerry Bridges. He says, or he continues, It was God's wrath toward our sin that Jesus saw in the cup that night, and from which he recoiled in such agony. We will never appreciate Jesus' agonizing prayer in Gethsemane. We will never appreciate the sweat drops of blood until we grasp in the depths of our beings that Jesus was staring at the wrath of God we deserve. We read the story of Gethsemane and the crucifixion so often that it has a tendency to become commonplace. If this is true of us, may we repent. And may we never again read Jesus' prayer of anguish without reminding ourselves that this was God's wrath against our sin that caused him such unimaginable agony. So Jesus stares at this cup, the wrath of God for us. And he stares at it and he says, if it can pass, let it pass. So he's in agony of becoming our sin, of taking our sin on him. It's unendurable for him. So he cries out, if there's any other way. And we see here, and the truth is, there is no other way. This is the only way you can be saved and I can be saved, is if Jesus was our substitute and died for us. And that he did, thankfully. There is no other way, through faith in Jesus alone. And so Jesus, he prays this. We see that he is pleading. This is how horrible it is. But not as I will, but as you will, Jesus says. Even with all this agony and the terrible awfulness to come, he says, not as I, but I submit voluntarily to your will. And you might ask, well, did Jesus really have a real choice? Like, did he really, could he really not go to the cross and simply leave us, rightfully so, to be damned to hell forever for all of us if Jesus didn't do that? Well, we see throughout um, his walk with the disciples, he says things such as, I laid down my life. And John, he says a few verses later when he's arrested that he could call on his father and 12 legions of angels would come. So we get that this is a possibility, but Jesus chooses to voluntarily surrender his will to the will of the father and he agonizes. But then we see he goes back to his disciples. Verse 40, and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour. 
Jesus is agonizing. He knows what's coming. He goes back to the disciples. They're asleep. You can just feel the, the abyss of feeling alone just deepens and darkens. Uh, Admittedly, remember, this is about midnight, if not past midnight. So they're probably tired. And we know that on top of that, sleep could be a means of escape from stress and sorrow at times. Even Luke, the physician, says that they were sleeping from sorrow. But it seems that Jesus' prediction that the disciples would abandon him has already begun. They're abandoning him at his, an hour of need of his utmost. And he says this to Peter. So could you not watch with me one hour? Could you not watch with me one hour? Can you imagine Jesus saying that to you? Alex, could you not watch with me and pray just one hour? And Jesus tells him, verse 41, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is is weak. And so at a time when Jesus is incredibly in darkness and loneliness, he thinks of his disciples. He thinks of them, what's about to comfort them. He tells them to watch and pray so they do not fall into temptation because they're coming and they're coming fast. He says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's what's stopping them. And let me ask you this. If this is your failure, like Peter, and you fall asleep, would Jesus ask you to watch and pray? Would not this event or this account be burned into your mind? I know it would for me. If I felt this way to our Lord and Savior, it would burn in my mind. And I argue that it's burned into Peter's mind. Because just years later, Peter writes this in 1 Peter 5, 8. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And you can almost imagine Peter thinking of these words from Jesus at this time of his failure as he's writing this to edify other believers. It's burned into his mind. One commentator, he rightfully wrote this, without prayer, without prayerful dependence on God and continual spiritual watchfulness, the flesh would win at the first moment of weakness. So we are here we are today in a time of unknown a time of, of stress, heightened stress, a time that would be very easy to give away to weakness, to give away to discouragement. Jesus says to watch and pray. Push ahead in confident prayer, confidence in the many promises that God the Father makes to us. And it's comforting to know that Jesus experienced the same pain even to a greater degree than we do, that we're experiencing right now. Hebrews 4.15 tells us this. And I, I, I quote this often. He says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus is not a distant king who barks commands and orders us. He's not like that. Instead, he's in there with us. He's gone through this. I used this illustration um, from the movie Gladiator a couple months ago. So bear with me. But I think it does a great job of kind of showing who Jesus is, this what he's like, the king is like. So if you've seen the movie, it opens up on a battlefield. The main character, Maximus, he's a general in the Roman army. He's getting his troops ready. He's going to lead the men against their enemies, the barbarians. In contrast to Maximus, you see Commodus, the son of the uh, Caesar's son, 
coming in in a, a luxurious trailer. He's not at the battlefield. No one respects him because he's not even there. But he's coming to the aftermath of the battlefield. So you see Maximus, he runs in. He's on horses. He's leading the troops into the battle. While Commodus sits in his luxurious trailer being taken to the battle. And at the fight, Maximus goes in. They're, they're fighting. He's going side by side. He falls off the horse. Then he turns into side by side with men back to back. He's then there with them. And Commodus is just in his trailer coming to it. My point is this, is that Jesus is not, he is not a distant king that sends his soldiers into a battle that he knows nothing of. He's the exact opposite. He is not like Commodus who sits in luxury and knows nothing of what's going on and he's just there for himself. Jesus, he knows the heat of battle. He is a king like Maximus who goes in there and he's with his men. He knows what it is to be thirsty. He knows what it is to be hungry. He feels the temptation to fear or giving up. He felt the agony. He knows the loneliness of sin. He's there. He's not distant, but he's near and he's there with you. And so Jesus, while in agony, we come back to here in the garden, he thinks of his friends. He's in complete agony, loneliness, and he thinks of his friends, the disciples. And then we see this continue, verses 42 through 44. Matthew says, again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. So this pattern happened three times. Three times. The idea of the wrath of God being poured out on him led Jesus into such sorrow that he pleaded if there was any other way it may be. And his disciples continued to sleep. They continued to sleep. And again, we see that contrast. Jesus, in agony, complete, utter agony, he chooses to obey God. The disciples, with the the weakness of their flesh and sleeping, they disobey the command of the Son of God. And then the account, it comes to a climax in verses 45 and 46. Matthew writes, Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So Jesus comes back from praying three times for the cup to pass. Now the hour is at hand. He tells the disciples, You can rest later on because the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. If we remember last week in our passage, the the crowds were calling Jesus the Son of David, referring to the Messiah. And now we hear see Jesus saying, calling himself the Son of Man, which is also a reference to the Messiah. It actually refers to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, 14, which says this. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the king. The hour has come. That's it. Jesus has preached his last public sermon. Jesus has done his last miracle. This is it. The hour has come. He's been telling his disciples that this was going to happen, but now it's here. And look at this. What does our king do in this time when it just culminates into this one point? 
He says, rise, let us be going. He meets his betrayer. He doesn't run. He comes and he meets him. He chooses this. He, he, he continues through. He agonized about it. He completely was in utter sorrow, but the decision has been made. And we'll see that continue until next week, the different passages we see. But look at this and praise God. This whole entire count is like a hot iron burning our flesh on the side as it reminds us of our repugnant sin and the evil that's so clear in this passage that it's our sin that Jesus is in agony over but yet we see through all this a determined Savior, our King, who's determined to die for his people. He's determined. He doesn't want to. We almost see that he's begging not to do it. But he's determined to obey God and we benefit salvation through faith in him. Three times he asked if there was any other way. And this is your King who decided to go with it. This is the King that you serve, that I serve. The King that deserves your trust and my trust in this unknown time. Unknown about finances, unknown about work, our kids, and unknown time. This is our king who deserves our trust. And how glorious that this cup of wrath that you deserve and I deserve, the cup, unfortunately, that many people in our world will encounter in eternity, he drank that cup of God's wrath to its last bitter drop. So for those who believe, the cup of God's wrath is empty. For those who believe, the cup of God's wrath is empty because Jesus had drunk it all for us. So this morning, let me uh, let me end with four last four points here, very quick. Four different challenges here. Number one is this: the dread itself of drinking the cup of God's wrath led the Son of God into such sorrow and anguish. And from that, do not trifle with hell. Do not trifle with hell. I remember um, growing up, there was this book that I read that it contrasted heaven and hell. And what it did was that it depicted hell as a place with rock music, a place that was just parting without end, a place of friends, a, a place where the devil ruled. And then it, it presented and depicted heaven as a place that it just has classical music. Your grandma's there. And it's kind of like a, a nursing home. And what a lie from hell. Because in hell, the devil's not ruling. He's being punished and tortured just like everyone else there. That was a complete lie. Therefore, pray, pray for your kid's salvation. Pray, because hell is real. And Jesus agonized. He agonized about our sin, the sin that leads us there. So that's the first one. Don't trifle with hell. Number two is pray. In the darkest moment, when he was in complete anguish, Jesus prayed. Don't be like the disciples who are either ignorant of what was going on, the battle that they're in, or they were arrogant that they can do it on themselves. Do not be like them. In this unknown time, with our finances, jobs, uh, with our schools, with family members, their health, come to the throne of God to find mercy and grace and comfort and provision. And when you don't know what to pray, because I often, okay, I, I, I should be praying, I just don't know what to pray. Open up God's word and begin reading because there will be much to be thinking of and praying because of that. And take comfort knowing this. Paul writes in Romans 8, 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, 
But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so number two is pray. Number one, don't trifle with hell. Number two, pray. Number three is this. Look to Jesus for strength and perseverance in this time. Hebrews 12 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In this time, gain strength from pondering and looking upon Jesus. Meditate on the man, the God-man Jesus, on what he's done for us, what he is doing right now for us in heaven, and who his different promises. Set your minds on Jesus. And this last one, the last point I'm going to leave us with, is very similar to the third one. It's just to hold on to the hope of Christ and to encourage one another. Um, I've been reading with one of the men from our church uh, just a little bit through church history. And we came across an account of a slave girl, a Christian slave girl named Blandina, who was tortured, this was in the second century, was tortured by the Romans for her faith in Jesus. And there's an excerpt from an eyewitness of this. I want to read this. So I'm going to end with this. And then we'll pray to end everything. So this is our sister in the faith almost 1,800 years ago, Blandina. The eyewitness says this. Blandina was filled with such power that she was delivered and exalted above those who were torturing her by turns from morning till evening in every way so that they confessed that they were conquered and could not do anything more to her. They were amazed at her endurance because her whole body was mangled and broken. They declared that just one of these forms of torture was enough to destroy life, let so many and so great sufferings. But the blessed woman, contending nobly, grew in strength by confessing her faith. She found comfort and rest and relief from the pain of her sufferings by exclaiming, I am a Christian and we do nothing vile. Blandina was hung on a stake and exposed to the wild beasts who were supposed to attack her. She appeared as though she were hanging on a cross. Because of her ardent prayers, she inspired the other combatants with great enthusiasm. They looked upon her and her ordeal, and they saw with her, with their outward eyes, in the shape of their sister, the one who was crucified for them, that he might convince those who believe in him that everyone who suffers for Christ's glory has fellowship forever with the living God. Since none of the wild beasts at that time touched Blandina, she was taken down from the stake and thrown again into prison, preserved for another contest. On the last day of these contests, Blandina was again brought in, together with Ponticus, a boy who was about 15 years old. Every day they had been brought in to see the sufferings of the others and had been pressured to swear by the pagan idols. But they stood steadfast and despised the idols so that the mob became furious. They had no compassion for the boy's youth nor any respect for the tender sex of the woman. So they subjected them to all the terrible sufferings and took them through the whole course of torture, 
repeatedly pressing them to swear by the idols, but to no avail. Ponticus was encouraged by his sister so that even pagans could see she was confirming his strength. After nobly enduring every torture, he gave up his spirit. But the blessed Blandina, last of all, having encouraged her children like a noble mother and sent them ahead in victory to the king, herself suffered all their conflicts and hurried after them, exalted and rejoicing in her departure as if, as if she were called to a marriage supper rather than being thrown to wild beasts. After whipping her, giving her to the beast, and burning her with hot irons, the authorities finally dropped her into a basket and threw her to a bowl. The beast gored her again and again, but she was not indifferent to all that befell her. But she was now indifferent to all that befell her because of her hope, her firm hold on that and all that her faith meant in her communion with Christ. Then she too was sacrificed. The pagans themselves admitted that they had never known a woman suffer so much or so long. Please pray with me. Father, Lord, give us the the spirit of strength that our sister in Christ, Blandina, had years, centuries ago, Lord. What courage in a, a place of darkness, in a place of just dis- where there could be discouragement and despair. Lord, in this hard time, in, our, in the unknown, God, may we have that, that strength and may we look on our Savior, Jesus Christ, who agonized for us because of our sin. Lord, may we draw strength that he is our king. He knows what we're going through. He knows far more than what we're going through. And he's with us. Lord, I pray for anyone listening who may not know you, who may not have their faith and who are trusting in you alone for salvation. I pray, Lord, that they would repent and trust in Christ for salvation. And Father, we thank you that you are faithful and that you are God. God, we pray this in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.